You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and HeadTeacherChat.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire. I am an education and leadership coach working with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of all their staff. I do that in lots of different ways, which I would be happy to chat to you about if you wanted to get in touch with me. Just email me at vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and I'd be very happy to have a conversation with you. I also run group coaching programs for women leaders and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. One of the reasons that I started this show in the first place was to support school leaders and probably in particular female school leaders to look after themselves better so that they don't end up at a point of burnout as I did, and so that they can sustain their careers for much longer. And one of the ways that I think it's really important to do that is by building communities of practice. So the Women Lead Well Network is a shared space where women in education can come together to support each other and champion each other. It's a place where They can connect with other like-minded women in education, in leadership in schools. They share their challenges and often they are just reassured that they're not on their own in the way that they're feeling or the things that are, are happening for them. And at the moment, I'm offering free membership to the Women Lead Well Network. So if you want to join us, just email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and I would be really, really happy to welcome you into the community. The show today is sponsored by Schools UK, who provide supply cover insurance, and they've been doing this for 24 years. And what I love about Schools UK and why I am sponsored by them is because they offer, as part of their supply cover insurance, a wellbeing package, which I think is fantastic and offers brilliant support for schools. So through that, one of the most important things I think the key bit of this policy is that you can get access for all of your staff to a GP on the day that you need it. And for me, that is just amazing because I think a lot of staff who work in schools are not going to the doctor when they need to and potentially suffering from health conditions as a result. And at the moment, if you use the code we lead well podcast you can get 10% off your premium with schools uk if you buy your cover insurance from them so that's a, a pretty big discount so i would <laughs> i would advise you to go on there have a look get yourself a, a quote and see how much money you could save so on the show today i am really excited to tell you that we are joined by Liz Robinson. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Liz and I am so glad that I was put in touch with her because this episode that she's on is absolutely brilliant. She is a national leader of education and Liz works with schools to help them to develop the practice and raise standards. In September 2018, she founded Big Education, which is an organisation that aims to inspire and provoke change in education. And she's now the CEO of the Big Education Multi-Academy Trust, which she'll tell us more about in the conversation. She was the head teacher of Surrey Square Primary School in Southwark for 13 years. And in that role, she used values to radically reshape its teaching approaches. The school was judged outstanding by Ofsted and it's widely celebrated for its work serving a highly challenging community. And Liz has taken that knowledge and applied it to the work that she does with the Multi-Academy Trust. And you're going to hear all about that in the episode. It's an absolute pleasure to have Liz joining us today. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So here she is. Liz Robinson. Liz Robinson, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. How are you today? Good, thank you. Lovely to be with you. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to have you on the show. I'm really, really looking forward to this interview because I just think that, you know, where you're coming from, your values, I think they're just going to chime with so many of, of the listeners of the podcast. It's, I think it's going to be really, really insightful for them. So can you start us off by introducing yourself to the listener, give them a bit of a flavour of who you are and what you do and what your journey to get to where you are now has been? Sure, happily so. 
So, um, yeah, so I went into education um, actually because I wanted to be a music therapist. So I was always drawn to wanting to work in quite intense, I suppose, therapeutic ways originally with children. So I was drawn to children and young people where there was some challenge, I guess, and came from a very much a left-wing socialist family. Um, so had this kind of idea of public service very much running in my blood. Um, so yeah, did did kind of very well academically myself and wanted, yeah, wanted, that was the path I wanted to take. So I ended up going into teaching to sort of essentially as a passport into going into more therapeutic work, actually. But essentially, I fell in love with um, primary schools as um, a vehicle for societal change. Um, I just I work, always worked in inner London, very challenging, complex communities. Um, and I just immediately saw in the first school I worked in the difference that a school and particularly a primary school can make to a whole community. Um, and very specifically, I kind of fell in love with the job of head teacher because I worked with a very dynamic woman called Sally Hindle. Um, and she was in her late 30s and she was incredibly kind of yeah, dynamic and stylish. And I, I basically just wanted to I was like, I want to be her. I want to do that. I want it. That looked amazing. And she was making this incredible difference in this school. So, yeah, so that's really then what I set about doing was not becoming Sally, but was was um, wanting to be a head. And so I became a head uh, very rapidly in my career, um, was benefited from a programme called the Fast Track Teaching Programme back in um, 2002, was in the first cohort of that, which was a big kind of new labour um, programme to support, you know, I suppose probably high potential individuals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, that that helped propel me forwards um, and became ahead in my late twenties. So really, kind of wow. very young um, to be doing that. Apparently, I was the youngest head in the country at the time. It was also at a time. This is back in two thousand and six when that was quite unusual. Um, and now I think with things like Teach First and so on. Um, that's much more common that you've got heads in their potentially late twenties, but certainly in their thirties. Uh, whereas at the time it was very unusual. And I started um, at Surrey Square School, which is in Southwark near the Elephant and Castle, Old Kent Road. Um, and I'd go to the head teacher meetings, and my kind of nearest peers were in their you know late forties <laughs> in terms yeah. of the other teachers there. So it's slightly surreal now. Eighteen years later, uh, they're all retiring. Um, I'm going to retirement parties from my head teacher mates, um, and I'm and I'm only in inverted commas 47 with a, a lot a lot of career, a lot of work ahead of me. So, yeah, so that that was my journey into into being head at Surrey Square, and that was as I say 2006. It was a time when the kind of policy environment uh, was very different to where we find ourselves now. Um, there was the whole idea of sure start, you know, sure start centres with yeah. it. Um, the team around the child, extended schools, um, Every Child Matters, of course, which 20 years ago this year that Every Child Matters was published. So this whole idea of school being about something broader, about young people being part of a family, families being part of communities, and there being multiple aspects um, that we needed to support children and families um, with, um, and academic learning being one part of, an important part of that and there being other important um, dimensions too. So that was where I sort of cut my teeth in that context as a head um, and very sort of proudly continued really with that work. So since 2010, really seen a, a positive, positive verb is a focusing, but I would say a narrowing of the focus of schools um, to be around um, much more focused on the academic learning, um, and one type of academic learning, obviously the knowledge rich um, influence um, and the, the emphasis on kind of curriculum as opposed to pedagogy or anything else in schools. Um, and yeah, I suppose in, since that time, I was already very established as a head, had taken the school to be you know, very well regarded by Ofsted and had lots of choices about what to do and I could have formed my own mat a long time ago and done lots of turnarounds and kind of been part of that move since 2010 um, and really without any criticism of people who have done that because there were just extraordinary colleagues I have who have gone down that kind of rapid school improvement turnaround model 
um, and I completely respect and applaud them for doing that work. I just knew it wasn't the work I wanted to do. I'd already turned around two schools by that stage. Um, and um, yeah, I wanted I wanted to expand what I'd learned and develop more people really who were committed to working in that way and to really deepen the thinking and the practice around um, the more expansive view of school that um, I held. So yeah, so done all sorts of different things, not least having two um, gorgeous daughters um, um, who are now Ella and Alice, who are now 11 and 9, um, and juggling all of that. And so yeah. <laughs> all sorts of different sort of ways of managing that, went into co-headship, having been head for a long time with my deputy, um, and worked flexibly in different ways to kind of juggle that when they were really little. Um, did a lot of work training other leaders. So I worked a lot on the Future Leaders program. I, made, I led the development into, into the primary phase and then did a lot of work coaching leaders through that program. Worked a lot through the Schools Partnership program, which is a peer review program, which Steve Mumby developed when he was at Education Development Trust, which was, I think, absolutely fantastic way of schools working with and learning together um, and all sorts of other all sorts of other things. I suppose, I think at that phase, I was sort of looking for the people and places to do the work that I really believed in, um, which wasn't necessarily the mainstream of what was happening um, in the last kind of decade and a bit. Um, yeah, and that led me um, and the team eventually to form Big Education, coming together with School 21, uh, which had a long kind of um, history of, of being a, you know a disruptive school and a school focused on some of the broader outcomes that that we believed in and uh, so very similar philosophy and ethos and what we were trying to achieve and so we formed big education together um this is now our sixth year in existence and yeah so we are a multi-academy trust a small multi-academy trust um focused on of course delivering um a high quality big education in our own schools and that's no mean feat getting that right um and on top of that looking to think about how we can best influence others in the sector to um engage in these in these practices so some of that's very practical through training, so we run a leadership program called the Big Leadership Adventure, which is a truly wonderful thing, um, which some of your listeners might be interested in, which is supporting leaders who want to do something a bit more expansive, uh, want to be part of the change, and it's really about empowering people um, to get into action and helping them do that well. Uh, we run a, 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 some other leadership development work, which is very focused on how to really be human-centered in when we're designing our work and when we're working, which is a, a big part of what underpins my philosophy. And then we run a number of programs for whole schools, but also Rethinking Assessment, which is um, a coalition project, um, which is making a lot of noise and trying to find some um, examples of practice and support development of practice of how do we actually assess in more holistic ways to reflect the fuller range of skills, competency, as well as knowledge of our young people. Wow. There's just so much there. Where do I start? Where do I start? Because I've got so many questions. Like you say something, I think that's a question. And then you say something else, and I'm like, oh, where, like, where, where do I start? Where, where, do I, where do I come back to? So there are, there are a few things that, that that brings up for me. And one of the big questions I want to ask is, like, it sounds like you're doing things differently in big education. But and, and you've you've sort of touched on it, haven't you, in terms of there's too much emphasis on academia and the, the curriculum. What else do you think is wrong with education currently and where do you think it really needs to change? And what's the first thing that needs to happen, do you think? Yeah, great question. I mean, first thing to say is that education is full of of extraordinary motivated committed people who get up every day very early because schools are early places and go in and do their very best to do a great job um and you know given what schools went through through covid um yeah and the the kind of collective trauma not to be too melodramatic about it yeah. about that experience what that experience was like for people working in schools um and the kind of extremity of the pressure and accountability that schools particularly school leaders are under yeah. and I think it's you know really i just want to make sure that i'm being clear that 
there is no criticism of existing teachers and leaders in the system um, in what I say, because I think the, 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 for me, the things that are creating the um, issues in the sector are kind of political um, and policy pressures, right? So um, at the moment, I'd say in schools, the biggest pressure, number one, is, is finance that I have, as I say, been ahead now for 18 years or CEO of a trust for 18 years. And this is by far the worst, the worst financial year that I've experienced. So that you can't understate that because that makes just that makes everything challenging yeah. and it debates other things. So that for me, it's it's intellectually a boring one. Right? There's no great intellectual argument about it, but it is but, nonetheless really fun. But one of the things that I was reading today in Schools Week is you know the new the new workload, um, whatever you call it, project of finding out how we, how we can reduce workload, and I just think. We're going, we, it's such a backwards way to go about it because you're saying let's reduce workload but we've tried so many different ways and nothing is going to happen until for me it feels like the government are reluctant to put more money into education but that is totally it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't put more money into education they want more R&D they want us to be the center of the financial world of you know we want to be a world leader in lots of different areas, but how can that ever happen if our education system is being stunted because the government are not prepared to invest money into it? It just, it feels so, like, so lacking in, in foresight. It's just, how can we save money now? Yeah. And it's like almost like, well, education, that's a big thing. If we cut funding for that, then we can save a bit of money here. But actually, if you want to grow your economy in the future, you've got to have children who become adults who can do the jobs or be in the roles that are going to then you know create that society where that's possible and yeah completely completely i couldn't agree with you more and you know obviously i it i'm not an economist there it, it's a it's complex isn't it how you know how these things are decided but ultimately it's politics and that that you know we've been in you know in 13 years of it is like is it com is it complicated though liz like put a seed in the ground and water it and it grows if you put a seed in the ground and you don't put any water on it and it it doesn't really grow yeah. well does it and no, I, it, I, I mean i agree with you that the, the it's investment isn't it chain isn't complex but the reasons behind why yeah, why things are funded and aren't is well it's political it's politics let's just yeah. so that's interesting like the work of the fed is quite interesting you know the foundation for education development is interesting and I've you know got a reasonable degree of involvement with them trying to think how do we create a 10-year plan for education which is you know depoliticized um or has multi you know cross-party support um to to get away from some of this short-termist and, and politicking which I think yeah. would only be a good thing so yeah so I think I mean but I think so fi finance is one um and the the next piece I would like to see reformed, and I think this we've never been in a stronger position that this may be the case, is Ofsted. And that for me is has such an unbelievably long shadow across the sector as, yeah. an, as an institution because of the values um and ways of working as well as the content um that that the that the organization has um for me that drives untold amounts of toxic behavior from leaders by leaders to leaders and therefore across the whole school system mm -hmm. so I, I i think the inspectorate has got it's obviously a regulator and an inspectorate ofsted it's got completely out of its box is my view um Interestingly, Sir Michael Wilshaw, uh, former chief inspector, has completely changed his mind. Yeah, and wasn't he? Wasn't he the person who said, "If teacher morale in your school is low, that's a good thing." It's, it's Michael Michael Wilshaw of the yeah. I mean, I, don't know, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. So I think he's an interesting kind of. I met him actually again last week. I shared a panel with him as, a few weeks ago before the summer. And, you know, he really has reflected and, you know, changed his view. But part that's, that's a good thing, isn't it? If someone can 
I, I mean, exactly. So yeah. like, so all for people, you know, rethinking mm. things um, and giving people the space to do that. I think the thing about Ofsted for me to get to the real crux of it, Ofsted would say, and many would say, that the real purpose of Ofsted at the moment is to support parents um, to have info information to enable them to make choice choices about their schools. Now, for me, that is the wrong purpose of an inspector or regulator. I just think it's the wrong purpose. A regulator should be there to ensure a basic level, or not basic, a, a good level of standards. Mm. Think about Ofqual or Ofcom, you know. Ofcom yeah. saying to Netflix, um, right, um, you know, only murder in the building or whatever it is. I don't know what's on Netflix, but <laughs> whatever, something on, you know, Queer Eye, <laughs> Queer Eye, right. Well, um, that we'd say that's good. Um, it's not outstanding because we think the characters are a bit underdeveloped um, or the, you know, the plot's a bit slow. So it's only good. No, it's not their job to define what excellence is in broadcasting. Their job is to say, these are some standards of public decency or whatever, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But, and we, we will evaluate the content to say, does it meet those standards? And if not, this is this is what will happen. This is the consequence. Yeah. So, uh, so to go back, the point that Ofsted says it's about informing parental choice. For me, a better purpose of Ofsted is to ensure that every school is a great school. Because the premise of choice is actually a flawed premise. You know, the experiment of parental choice, we could say, has failed. Because the reality is most parents around the country don't really have a meaningful choice. If you live in a rural area, you go to the school that's that's accessible. But, but also, if you look at what the ironically, like choice is supposed to improve experience. Right. However, right. the irony of it is that disadvantaged pupils have less choice than more right. advantaged pupils. Right. So it creates an even bigger gap, doesn't it? So, for example, my local high school here has been not a very good high school for many, many years. It, it, it carries a, a dreadful reputation. And potentially it could be a brilliant high school if everybody in this local area actually went there. It would be a true comprehensive and it could be a brilliant, brilliant school. What happens is because it has a bad reputation, the parents who can afford it and who really actually have time to put into their children, they will go to, to church every week. They will send their children on the bus to the high school that's out, outside the area. Yeah. And in actual fact, that means the gap is greater than it would have been so the i suppose it's the myth of choice isn't it because it it's not yeah it's and not having any impact areas, i mean i've done a lot of work in east anglia and you've got whole areas where all the schools are ri or in special measures because there's kind of some really chronic local place-based issues around recruitment and you know, workforce and aspiration, and there isn't a social mix. It's very, very, you know, very economically deprived. And, you know, we know that there's a massive correlation between those factors and less favourable offset outcomes, right? So just having all the schools then labelled, it's like, well, how is that helping anybody? And how does it help the school? So does getting put in special measures or told you requires improvement in this crass way? I mean, Ofsted just buggering off and leaving you. <laughs> Does that help the school get better? Well, no. I know it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? But <laughs> I'm answering it because I've got ex I've got experience of working with schools who are in challenging situations, in challenging communities, where they have been through a significant amount of turbulence, ended up having 15 heads in the same the same number of years, for example. They've always been RI or special measures and Ofsted can keep coming in and giving you those but but it's not improving so it tells you that is there any point in Ofsted if you've got so many schools who end up in positions like that and then what's happening one one school had a you know it was this is the academic chain they're going to take you over I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on that but then another school you know where it's like right okay 
you've had a head now there for nearly three years making a difference ask the staff ask the community ask the kids results didn't show what um, the regional schools commissioner wanted them to show this summer so all of a sudden now it's going to be maybe you're going to be taken over by another academy trust and we'll get another head in now what, what is what's the point in that then we say, why have we got a problem with recruiting leaders? It's like, well, yeah. I mean, well, why would you want to go and be ahead? Why would if... you want to go and be ahead, particularly in an area of high social challenge? I mean, it literally is putting your own career and your livelihood on the line. You know, it's and I was thinking about it's like football, isn't it? I, I was thinking, I was listening to something, it was about a manager, and I thought headship has become like football management. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a team will, if you don't show that you can improve this team in X number of months or one year, then you're pretty much out. But the but the safety net's not there. You yeah. don't get half a million pound payout no. when you get the sack at the no. end of your contract. No, it's not the same for a head teacher. If you lose your job, what do you do then? How do you get yourself another job having been in a place where... No, I mean... Com completely and I know god I know so many people leaving headship it's really I find it really scary so so that was your all oh, we went into a big old uh rant <laughs> there but that that for me is why because I think the kind of multiple multiple toxic consequences I call it you know the the, the long shadow the, the the unintended but nonetheless very real consequences um it means that because the tail wags the dog doesn't it yeah, the tail wags the dog because that has just then an impact on, and because Ofsted is obviously so politicised, you know, the, the you know Amanda Spielman, completely part of you know the, the whole sort of thought thought leadership group around the knowledge rich, you know, standards and behaviour stuff, and which is I don't disagree with high standards and good behaviour and knowledge rich curriculum. It's just the emphasis that has been given and the narrowness uh, that's been that's been placed on it, and so. Yeah, so Ofsted focuses on curriculum, so everybody orients everything around curriculum. Um, which... And now we just have to get kids to be able to remember things. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what the focus, it feels to me like that's the focus in schools at the minute, like yeah. how do we get children to remember this? And it's like, I was, yeah. I was having a conversation with my group coaching group for MPQSL the other day, and it, one of the things that came up that they were saying we really struggle with is, how can you remember everything? How do we know what, what you need to remember? Because if you start in learning things when you're four, how do you keep coming back to all that as you build up the knowledge? And they're, they're just, I think they're just completely like baffled by it in, in a lot of ways because it's just so complex. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's all the stuff about schema and spiral and revisit, yeah. all of that stuff. And I, I, I that it's good it's good to have a well sequenced and planned curriculum it i think for me the point is that um really at the nub of it is the definition of curriculum right so for me the a, the curriculum for a young person is the entirety of what they learn through the experience of being part of that institution so everything is part of their curriculum how they're treated you know how people speak to them and speak to each other you know the, the, what what play times what free times are like the whole thing for me is their curriculum because that they don't just learn in these little you know 50 minute segments or whatever they're constantly learning aren't they exactly they're constantly learning at a sort of unconscious as well as conscious level and we've got a, a definition of curriculum which has been hijacked by the kind of knowledge rich um, community to mean that curriculum design literally is about the, the the planned sequence of lessons that a teacher teaches. So we have a definition of curriculum, which has become very narrow in itself. Curriculum is all about the lessons that the children get taught in in history and geography and the knowledge, the domain specific knowledge that they're getting taught. Well, that's fine. It's just partial. It's just not the entirety of what young people learn when they're at school. And we were, in fact, it's, it's quite a small part of it, really, isn't fact, it? it's quite. Think about it. And in terms of actually young people being ready to learn, wanting to learn, being motivated, feeling safe, feeling a sense of belonging, feeling, you know, all the rest of it, it's a very, very small part of it. Because all those things have to come first, don't they? Like right. you you have to be able to first, if you think like going back to teacher training, one of the things that you teach teach it like trainees is the classroom environment that you create. Right. Like, how do you create a classroom environment in which pupils feel safe and feel calm and are able to learn effectively? 
I remember a, a conversation I had with a guy once who was a deputy head in a school cluster that we were in. And I said, you know, like culture, behavior, relationships have to come first. And he said, no, no, if your teaching is brilliant and you're inspiring the kids, then that's the most important thing. And I was like, I'm going to have to disagree with you there because <laughs> you've got to create the conditions first. Mm -hmm. It's like a plant, as a, you know, come back to plant I metaphor. Plant. I like your organic metaphor. Yeah, if you put a plant in stony, horrible soil, mm -hmm. it's not going to grow as well as one that's in really rich, fertile soil that's been well dug and well prepared. Mm -hmm. I just think that's, to me, culture. And it's not just about the children either, is it? It's about the culture that staff teach in and that they feel safe yeah, to absolutely. be able to explore things and take risks and try new things mm -hmm. as well. And unless you can create that culture. What I love about what I've read about um, your Academy Trust is that you let your, like each of your schools have a different set of values. It's not like this is our, I mean, I guess there are overarching values that they come across really clearly from you of, of your trust. But each school is seen as an individual, yeah. like, unique entity, isn't it? With its own, with its own chosen values. And you can, when you read them, you can, I can, I can see staff have been included in that, and the kids have been included in that. It's been a, who are we? What you know? What do we stand for? What do we believe in? And what do we value? And that comes through really strongly. And I think that's a really key part of what you're talking about, isn't it? That all these things that underpin schools and that you've got to get right before you even sort of build on top then that knowledge curriculum or the academic yeah. element yeah. of the school. Before we hear more from Liz about values in education, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of different information for schools to tap into. Head Teacher Chat is more than just a platform. It's a community, a support system and a trusted companion in the ever evolving journey of educational leadership. Whether you're looking for resources, community support or expert insights, Head Teacher Chat is there for you every step of the way. To find the support you need or to join the conversation, head over to Head Teacher Chat's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn pages or visit their website at headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat, it's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. I think that's right. I mean, when you think about Maslow, you know, easy to trot out, but it's true. If your children are hungry or, you know, whatever, uncomfortable and not, not, yeah, not, not able to focus. Don't, yeah. I mean, but that is a real debate at the moment. And, you know, partly from the point in 2010 when, you know, the, the, the rainbow, the Department of Children, Schools and Families, you know, had the rainbow on it, the logo and the DFE, and it was literally scraped off the wall. <laughs> and went back to becoming the department of education so this is a this is not this is not accidental this is about a different ideology it's about a different philosophy about the role of education um it goes it does go into politics in terms of um you know opportunity and how we see opportunity and in a sense social mobility and um how much support and early intervention is needed to support people um as opposed to a more you know, a more right wing view, which is more kind of, well, look, you're given the opportunity, you need to get up off your bootstraps and make the most of it. And, you know, there's that kind of tough, more tough love kind of approach. And you see that played out in, in how education is, um, is has been shaped and how schools have been shaped. And yeah, I think the truth is, you know, my politics are, <laughs> are fairly self-evident that, you know, I just, my experience, I suppose, aside from my politics, is that working in these communities as I have with really, really, you know, profound need and profound um, poverty and social challenge, gangs, violence, domestic violence, drugs, all of it, prostitution, all of it a daily, daily occurrence. Um, it needs 
sophisticated early intervention multi-agency working to support these families to enable children to, to go on in, in different trajectories yeah it was in, it was interesting because as you were talking before and you were mentioning like sure start centers team around the child every child matters and and everything it's a bit it, well it, it felt like a bit ironic that like we had all of those things and now like a lot of that's been taken away and there's so much more emphasis on the school as being responsible for the social care of of children I had on the show last week um jenny uh, bowers and she does a lot of work in SEN and safeguarding she was talking about now how how much more responsibility schools have in terms of that social care type of work without the support yeah, networks yeah. actually yeah. actually being there yeah. you know there's so much more emphasis on schools being responsible for that whilst at the same time with with like the the narrow focus on curriculum and academia makes you think no school is a place where you come in to learn mm. but you just can't separate the two can you and it, I, don't know, I think it's interesting because i think actually that emphasis on schools to do that wider work actually comes from individual schools um i mean of course there's quite heavy safeguarding responsibilities and the kind of contextual safeguarding does you know put quite a serious emphasis i mean rightly so on schools but actually i'd say there's a lot of schools that really are very and school leaders who would be very very clear that actually it's not our job it's not our job to do that our job is about education and there's a very strong view that you know getting young people through their passport qualifications to empower them to have choices about how they live their lives is our job and if that means draconian behavior policies and you know all the rest of it zero tolerance because that's this is the pain you pay now for the passport to a different future you know that that is a very dominant view mm. now i'm not saying i think poor behavior is okay and we should have you know not have high best standards of behavior i do but i just think there are different ways of going about that and well I, I read i read in yeah. in wales online probably clickbait because yeah. <laughs> yeah. i thought oh yeah, yeah, um yeah. like a head teacher who was totally draconian in the behavior yeah. and and well he in in a year when you know standards were below where we were expecting his school did brilliantly and they you know that he was yeah suggesting that those draconian behavior uh, systems and policies were what had made the difference yeah. because yeah, I, i've actually visited that school before before he took it over so i do have some context around you know the challenges there and yeah i mean it, we was not in a good place before that now when a school is in crisis and you've got a thousand adolescents you know who are not contained and you know it it is it can be unsafe very quickly no matter whether no matter the level of challenge of you know in the community that that school is in it was in a challenging part you know there's lots of children with lots of stuff going on should we say um but in any school if you had a thousand adolescents sort of not feeling that someone was in control and, and um there were some boundaries around it it would it would quite quickly be in you know an unsafe place to be aside from not a good place to learn so look it's important that there is order and things are orderly and that you know there are structures and so on that support young people to to engage in appropriate ways um there a kind of zero tolerance you know lockdown style is one way of doing it it will get certain effects very quickly you know it um yeah it also has other other side effects so that's one of the things that i think is important for us to think about more in education um we talk about evidence-informed practice and often get compared to medicine and kind of you know use of randomized control trials and the use of yeah data to inform uh, not data but you know evidence and research to inform policy making but we don't attend to side effects in our research within education so you know if you teach kids synthetic phonics for an hour every day or two hours every day their score in the phonics 
screening will get higher. Like, yep. <laughs> like, no shit, Sherlock. Um, right. So do we does that say, right, yeah, we're gonna do an hour, we're gonna do two hours a day of phonics every day, and then we'll get hundred percent or we'll get ninety-nine percent or whatever. And the question is, well, what's the side effect of doing that? So what's the side effect of synthetic phonics teaching at all or however much of it? What's the right dose? How do we, because what some of the side effects is it puts a lot of kids, particularly boys, off writing and reading at quite an early age because they see it as being formulaic and, you know, decontextualized. And they don't develop a love of reading and writing at an early age because they see it as, you know, it sort of doesn't engage them it doesn't touch them it does they don't get that love of learning they don't get a love for reading and then we see all the stats about a shockingly low number of young people owning children you know owning books or reading books or reading books for pleasure regularly it's like well yeah maybe you know maybe there's some side effects so you see my point so so in terms of you know the very the very very draconian behavior approaches they sure they'll work because the adults can impose order and they have the power and they have the control and they will can we you know and that maybe you may have to do some of that for a short period but what worries me is it becomes almost fetishized as, as an end in itself um so if something's in crisis yeah you may need to do some very short sharp interventions to um, to, to stabilize things but it's how to me it's about how um we build empowering relational environments where young people can thrive um and behave appropriately because they are increasingly able to make good choices about how they behave not just because they're scared you know that if they breathe out of line they're going to be in detention because to me that's not actually empowering them for the long term you could put yourself on mute actually vicky for some reason i have because my son has emerged from his room and he was banging doors and <laughs> so i thought just put myself on mute for now um i think what i was i've just completely lost my train of thought then it doesn't help when you're perimenopausal either when your train of thought oh, just let's talk about that yeah we can just that. drop out of your head and you just oh, go in ah i had something to say then one of the things i think i was going to say was actually about how then we model behavior systems to young people because the only experience they have is how they're disciplined at home and how they're disciplined at school and then th that becomes how they discipline their own children and I don't necessarily think that draconian ways of disciplining children are correct because there's more about responsibility, regulating your emotions, things like that. Um, and it's, I think it's about, it's a really difficult one, this, isn't it? Because if you, if you promote more emotional approaches or empathic approaches to behavior you get criti criticized don't you for being airy-fairy mm. like oh you, you know you're just letting them get away with anything or blah 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 and that restorative justice or zones of regulation things like that which I am a big supporter of because I think it's so important for young people to be able to regulate themselves to be able to recognize their emotions mm. and to be able to know how to deal with those so that when they become adults, they become actually adults who are able to regulate yeah. themselves. And in education, we've got a lot of teachers who've never been taught that. They've never learned that. They've just yeah. learned from their own education that this is how you discipline children. So this is how I'll discipline children. And it's not the best way. Yeah. But And they'll, you know, not be able to control their own tempers and they get annoyed with the children. It's a bit yeah. of a self-perpetuating thing, isn't it? Yeah. But how, how do you yeah like most people like we're quite i suppose liberal socialist people like i i, I, I totally am and it's hard because you've got to persuade people mm. that actually this is a better way of doing things. that might look on the surface and it might give you quite quick wins yeah. but in the long term it's not it's not necessarily for the best because we're not actually like you have you have the head heart and hand thing don't you and i think that like that heart-centered approach yeah. like developing well-rounded human beings and the you've talked about that sort of seeing people as humans and it, it's not easy to sell that is it to a lot 
to a lot of people, a lot of parents, you know, society in general? Well, no, it's really interesting. I mean, a couple of things there. Is it easy to sell it? And kind of what, what does that look like in practice? I suppose the two things. Let me start with the second one in terms of what that looks like in practice to me. But I think this is about, um, for me, it's about how do we build capacity and how do we empower people? So this for me is entirely about the kind of organisational culture that you're developing both for your adults and for um, the children and young people. So um, I fundamentally hate giving people the answers as a teacher or as a leader. I want people yeah. to think. And I think that um, getting people to engage their own thinking processes um, is at the heart of what we should be doing as educators, right? Because simply me telling you something and you remembering it is a very low level kind of way of engaging, right? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's like, yeah. people think. But I, I missed it. But, so what that means is um, that it, it's it's a different stance to say, right, I want you to think. So just if we say to you, this is not Summerhill, you know, it's, we're not we're not democratic schools in the fullest extent of saying, right, you can do what you like. It's up to you. It's all over to the young people. There are versions of that, you know, more democratic education, which are very interesting and worth looking at. Um, however, we are we're, we're, we're in an in, in, in between position. So very specifically at Surrey Square, uh, when I first started, the first thing I did was introduce values. So previous to that, there was a very draconian behaviour system with a series of lots of rules and lots of consequences, names on board, ticks next to your name, and then consequences of escalating things with an extraordinary range of then positive extrinsic uh, motivation stickers and books of stickers. And if you got a 10 books of 10 pages of your sticker book, you got a thing and it was like just like, you know, the most hideous setup and the behaviour was shocking. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we got rid of all of that and we went to having values and we co-constructed the values with the community and they're pretty much the same now. They've morphed a little bit in 18 years and they became the only way or they became the North Star for um, everyone making choices about their behaviour. So we got rid of all, all rules. So Surrey Square has no rules. There are no rules. There are the values. So what that means is it's in, in our organizational development terms, people talk about tight loose. So it's tight yeah. because the, it's tight. These are the these are the values. This is what is OK around here. And the looseness is right. You can make choices within that. And the point for me that's exciting about that is that means that young people, even from the age of two in our you know um, nursery provision, have to actively think and engage. They have to make they have to make a, a link between the choices they make about what they do and how that relates to this framework. And that is literally explicit. And of course, we scaffold it in all sorts of different ways for them. Um, but they are literally learning, exactly as you just said, to regulate themselves and to make choices about how to, how to behave, what's appropriate behavior, moderate their own behavior uh, within a framework. Now that, for me, surely, is what we should be doing as schools, as opposed to saying, here are the rules, these are the consequences if you don't follow them. Your only job is to do what you are told in this school. I totally agree with you. I'm 100% agree with that. I think, do you ever get the, ah, but life isn't like that, is it? Like when you leave school, society has rules and you have to follow them and if you don't follow them then you get in trouble with the police and there are society has uh rewards and consequences and maybe not well i suppose you could say rewards but a consequence there is there are consequences if you don't follow the rules like that would be the response that you would get from some yeah people wouldn't it yeah. what, what would yeah. you say to that i would say that as um my background is primary so this is in a primary context uh, my, my response is that as young people develop through their adolescence and towards young adulthood, um, if they are being taught in that values-led approach um, through their PSHD curriculum, through your careers education, as they mature, you know, thinking about values, society, how you operate in society is it an entirely organic um, development from that. So I think if you've got young people who are empowered to be making choices about their own um, behaviour based on a set of values around respect or 
responsibility and they're thinking mm, how do I show respect in this situation you know that that discipline in them that mindset of them of being aware of oh well what are the values there and, and of course even within primary part what we'll be talking to children at Surrey Square about as they grow through the school is going from being one of our values is community and you start thinking about the community of your family and then your class and then it gradually evolves and by year six they're thinking about being a global citizen what does that mean different communities so of course you're expanding them beyond that to think well what does it mean what does responsibility what does respect mean when i think about being a global citizen what what are they you know there of course there's different role different rules different contexts but being able to apply that to different contexts for me is is, is simply a maturation of of the skills that you've developed and also because when you're in school you're not you're not an adult you're not you're not right. exposed to that like, this prepares you for well you don't need the consequences of the law do you when you when you leave school because school has i mean i ideal in an ideal world i mean there will be young people who go out there and continue to make mistakes but if you've created that it's it's almost coming back to citizenship isn't it it's the recognition of you know as young people they look inwards and we have to help them to look outwards and to recognize that everything that they do and their behaviors the way they act have consequences on other people and like you're saying broader consequences you know as you get older you understand and you recognize more about you don't just exist in a vacuum you exist within this family yeah. then you exist within this school yeah. and this community and then the the broader it's about actually we use school to create those exactly. values to create that thinking to learn <laughs> to learn and it's not to say that you know Surrey Square and our values and approach it's not to say that there's not consequences for young people if they make you know choices that are not in line with the values there are consequences and we sometimes have to exclude kids and I have once in my life done a permanent exclusion only once but you know and that's so there's nothing that's sort of it's all fluffy that, that you know and and the kind of reflective conversations that young people have if they have not been showing the values you know is is serious and it's one of those it's much more intense i would say and um, because it demands of them that, that they actually reflect on it and they have to talk about it <laughs> and they have to take responsibility for it which is very different to say you know then oh, you broke this rule, right, this is the consequence. It's much more transactional, whereas this is a reflective process. And also, I think what happens when you've got very strict systems is you will keep on punishing the same children. There'll be a small group of children who just learn, I'm a naughty person, I can't be good, this is what happens to me, who then go, ah, well, yeah so yeah. what i'll just come to detention every day and for yeah. some children i'm not saying for some children it doesn't work but other methods would work better for those children as well like a conversation would work equally as well as a detention they probably wouldn't do it again yeah. but what happens is you really you you there's a saying isn't there is it something about hitting a nail with the i don't know but you those children who just repeatedly I went to the it was the 50th anniversary years and years ago of a school that I was working in that was a secondary modern and was 50 years old and they got all the punishment books out so they got all the lists of children who'd been to head and been slippered that you would look at and as you flip through the pages same same boys like there were probably four or five who were exactly the same some of them obviously were slippered and thought I'm not having that again yeah. but but and really it perpetuates that doesn't it when yeah. you have very strict consequences and no opportunity to think about it talk it through consider how you might have behaved yeah. differently yeah. What you... yeah it's like if we always do what we've always done we would get what we've always got um same kids will fall out so what just made me think i did a session um i think it was last week about for, for somebody about um how do we create empowered independent engaged learners that was it that was the set the question that was the session i've been asked around how do we create empowered engaged independent learners and i started the session with this group of leaders by saying okay we're going to start with a bit of honest reflection and all think about what we do that disempowers disengages and creates dependence 
and it was so powerful and they all sat there and they all were like yeah we're doing uh, <laughs> and if you go back to this whole you know i know it's a bit of a cliche but a child learning to walk you know if a child if, if we hadn't had the, the you know the you know the getting out of the learning pit wherever he's called um guy claxton oh guy claxton yeah you know if we didn't if young if babies and toddlers didn't have the resilience and the stickability and the perseverance to kind of keep going when they kept falling over you know they'd still be scooting around on their bums wouldn't they so what do we do as a school system that disempowers them disengages and makes them more dependent more dependent and the answer is generally a lot so that's the kind of challenge i think is is important for us as leaders and teachers to be thinking about um um, at, at, at big levels and at small levels if we want our young people to to step up how do we get out of the way <laughs> and I always think you know your point about yes there's always a few often boys but not not always children who really struggle. did I did I really do gender bias then and, <laughs> no, and say boys I'm not sure I'm, I don't, maybe, <laughs> whether I said it or you imagine or you had it in your head you know, I, but, I'm afraid I was probably thinking of boys but I think yeah. it was, anyway, but no, it maybe, it was it was a boys' school. That's why I'm. That's yeah, why yeah. it was boys. It no, was. no, that wasn't <laughs> uh, I, I think you know there's some obvious sort of loud, sad situations with children falling out of the system, which is important to look at. And I also feel very passionately as a mother of two girls, who have always I've always been told are wonderful and oh they'll just sit and colour nicely won't they they'll be with it and they've never never been in any bother and and when people say about my boys they'll go oh two boys you got two boys that you know but this is but I think as, a, as an educator this is one of the things that bothers me is you know they do suck it up and they do get on with it and though they've just recently changed school they used to come and be vitriolic about how bored they were how much they hated it but at school they would just be good as gold and suck it all up and i'm thinking what are we teaching my fiery girls who i want to go and bloody kill the patriarchy and sort the world out with me and the, and, the, and there's just like they're too the whole context is oh well you've just got to sit down shut up and do what you're told that's what we've taught that's what we've taught that's what we teach in our generations aren't we implicitly and explicitly so how do we undo some of that disempowering rather than thinking how do we empower them how do we stop disempowering them for starters how do we stop making them so dependent and less independent as with many things i think the answers are all in good early years classrooms the, yeah. the, most, the best early years classrooms go and look at them and as a sector we should have should be extrapolating from that practice what does that look like for a year 10 classroom? Because that's where the answers are. And it always makes me so sad. Like, when made me so sad when my boys went from early years and loved it, played, experimented, explored, and then went into year one and sit, right now sits at the table and now you can and have a pen phonics. and do big right. <laughs> and do phonics and do phonics because we're going to be able to account for our bloody phonics score and and like both one of the lot sorry it gets both of my boys switched off school then my my older son just went i taught you one and it's like literally you can see the boys the difference between the girls the girls can hold it together generally because they're more mature um but the boys are like just they it just turns them off and we push the phonics 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 and the writing before they're ready and then you've got kids in boys in years i don't like writing and it's like how can this even be possible you know you don't even know what writing is yet i mean conceptually you know yeah but that's but, that's I, I suppose that's a that's the education system we're trying to get children to do things before they're actually before their brains are ready to do it yeah 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 and and you know like even when you look at the gcse uh, specifications now they've got things on there that were, were on a level specifications years ago i actually looked at one of my i was messing about in the loft and i found an essay an exam that i'd done when i was at university and i marked it and thought oh, i didn't mark it sorry i read through it and thought i don't even know if that would get an a star in gcse english literature these days wow. and i'd got 60 i think i'd got 65 for it as like an, at my university exam and I thought 
gosh, that's how much like we're ex we just expect mm. too much of children sometimes, and it it's almost like um you know zones of uh, proximal development, and you yeah. know you want to you you obviously want to push push them to to make something feel challenging, but I think we we're making things like too difficult for children. Mm. You know, that there's a of course expose children to great literature but expecting children to read and understand Charles Dickens when they're 11 and as, as a teacher you can make it accessible I'm not I'm not saying that but there's so much other rich literature yeah. out there that's much more suitable for 11 year olds that yeah. will help them to that's develop their line, Vicky that's a direct line from the you know the Hirsch and the powerful knowledge and you know you know the great canon and all of that I mean it is it, it's, it's, that is what's happened that, that is an ideological view of a particular view of what knowledge should be taught and you know, that's when it gets into the whole question around sort of decolonizing curriculum you know which canon which which work whose voices whose history which stories which literature blah 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 which gets us into a whole you know that's a whole nother podcast isn't it well there's i've got loads of questions here that i've still not asked you and there are like there is another there's another three podcasts actually so <laughs> just to block out your diary for the future um i mean it's been so amazing to talk to you it's from my perspective it's such a shame that you only have three schools in your academy trust well, I mean, well, <laughs> could, you man could you manage 500 yeah, we are looking to grow if anyone randomly is listening who has a school in London or the South East is interested. So yeah, we are looking to grow um, a little bit. We don't want to be massive. Um, um, yeah, but there's loads of ways that people can get engaged with our work and um, particularly around the leadership development work, you know, really helping people lead in this way because it's not what gets taught in terms of NPQs and so on. It's a different approach. And that's really something we're very passionate about is empowering leaders to, to lead in ways um, that are themselves more empowering yeah um yeah and work with schools etc so yeah really loads of ways to get in touch or follow us or sign up for our newsletter keep in touch what we're up to as big education and yeah we're trying to be small but mighty so we, 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 need, you. we, <laughs> we need you in the north liz <laughs> we need you in the north this oh. is where you know there's a massive divide currently between north and south isn't there and we need more we need more multi-academy trusts like yours that are not that are not imposed that, that are there supporting their schools and creating that environment in which schools can be empowered and can thrive at, at not ramming things down schools throats and saying this is our way and this is how you must do it because yeah. unless you recognize that each school is a you like at schools i always think like they're such unique organisms that's like you know yeah research is important but you you never you can't have a control group you can't recreate what you've got in one place because there are just so many different factors i think what i love about what you do is that you recognize that individuality of your schools you you you're there to support them and there's a bigger picture with it but yeah. but you recognize that they are unique individual organizations yeah. capable of and you know, ultimately that that is my driving philosophy which is a human-centered client-centered approach or child-centered approach you know it's it's we want to change the system but we know we need to do that one person at a time because change happens when one person changes their mindset and therefore changes their behavior and it's how we can keep doing that um at, at some scale um to try and influence the system more generally what a great way to finish thank you so much for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure to thank chat you to you it's made my brain go <laughs> because <laughs> i've got all these things written down here that i still want to want well, to find out from you yeah we definitely will thank you so much have a great day liz pleasure bye i want to say a really big thank you to liz for joining me on the show today being the ceo of a multi-academy trust and having two young daughters as well is really challenging and time consuming and for her to take the time to come and talk to us and give of her time so generously 
is really, really kind. And it's amazing to listen to someone who is so passionate about education and recognises the challenges that we face, but also is really positive and recognises that there are solutions. And you can see that Liz is putting those solutions in place in the schools, in her multi-academy trust, and it is working. So there's evidence that you, know, you can do things a different way. You just have to be courageous and believe that what you're doing is the right thing. And if it is having an impact, then keep on doing it. That is all we've got time for on the show today. As I said at the start of the show, if you would like to chat to me about how I could support you to implement some coaching in your school, or if you would like to be coached yourself, email me. It's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk or email me if you would like to join the Women Lead Well Network. We would be very happy for you to join us. So whatever you're going to do this week or this weekend, do something for yourself, do something that you enjoy, and I will speak to you next time. Take care of yourself, take care of your staff, and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and headteacherchat.com. 